John Kehoe, welcome to News for the Soul. Hey, how are you? Next up, Dr. David Morehouse. I'm so glad that you called me because you are doing such an important task, important work, because you are spreading a very positive message. I was really moved by last week's show because we made a commitment to a worldwide event to try to change consciousness. Next on News for the Soul, it's time for Breaking Through with Grace Gideon. Grace is a passionate and dedicated international life coach with a bachelor's in law, a master's in East-West psychology, and an expert in addictions. Grace combines these skills in her practice to clinically and intuitively diagnose and break through subconscious issues that prevent you from achieving success and fulfillment. She has a unique capacity to tune in to repress psychological and emotional blocks and to teach effective techniques to transform your life in a deep and long-lasting way. And now to help you make your next breakthrough, here's Grace. Grace, welcome back. Hi, Nicole. How are you? I'm interesting. How are you? <laughs> interesting. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, well, it's, I've got a very interesting topic today. So, um, yes, hi everyone, I'm Grace Gideon, welcome back to Breaking Through with Grace on News for the Soul Life Changing Talk Radio and let's help change your life today. So today I picked a quite a serious topic, it's um, addictive relationships and trauma bonds. Last week we talked about addiction to food, this week I want to talk about addiction to people, in particular addictive relationships. In past shows, I've raised the idea of the conscious versus the unconscious relationship. So under the heading, if you like, of the unconscious relationship, there are quite a few genres. Two of those genres are addictive relationships and trauma bonds. Just like I've said that a person can be addicted to sugar, flour, alcohol, drugs, work, gambling, to name a few of the um, addictions that are quite common. You can also get addicted to particular types of people and particular types of relationships or emotionally charged relationship-related processes. So I'm going to explain what I mean by that a little bit later on. However, a trauma bond is different to an addiction. That's why I've separated trauma bonds and addictive relationships. Although both of them have unhealthy attachment as a component, a trauma bond is usually what can underlie or set up an addictive relationship or process, but it's its own creature. Okay, so... Stay tuned while I explore both of these today. And why did I decide to discuss these topics? Because quite a few listeners from previous shows on conscious and unconscious relationships have um, asked questions like, why am I in an unconscious relationship? Or why can't I find my soulmate? How come I keep attracting the same type of person over and over again? Why can't I commit? Why am I afraid of sex? Why am I obsessed with sex? Where does my fear of intimacy come from? What, how do I get over this, this repetitive pattern of failed relationships? Well, sometimes, guys, before you can get over it, you have to get under it. So that's why I'm going to try and explain to you some of the dynamics that may have prevented you from finding a true love partner and a soulmate. And those people who particularly interested in soulmates and twin flames, there's a tiny little bit at the end of the show that kind of needs its own show, but there's a tiny little bit at the end of the show. Um, I'm going to... So, so, if you're struggling with any of these issues, like Nicole said, please feel free to call in at the end of the show on plus one, Six four six five nine five four two seven four, or just email your question during the show to on the air at tellus t e l u s dot net, and I'll have a go at answering it for you. 
So let's go now to the topic of addictive relationships. What is that? What's an addictive relationship? I'll let you conjure up some images of what that might be like. Two people constantly embraced with each other, a bit of drama, stuff like that. Well, while you're conjuring up those images, I'll give you my definition. An addictive relationship is what's known as a process addiction as opposed to a substance addiction. It's a mood-altering process that you're compelled to continue to engage in regardless of serious negative consequences that it's having on your well-being or even on your sanity. As with food addiction, which I discussed last show, there are certain characteristics that all addictions share, whether they're process or substance addictions. So a relationship is a process addiction, food, alcohol, drugs, and substance addictions. If these characteristics are present in either a process or a substance addiction, you can be pretty sure that you are in an addictive dynamic. Let me start with the three Ds. Number one, drug of choice. Number two, denial. And number three, deception. The three Ds, drug of choice, denial, and deception. There are three other points, but I'll start with the three Ds. Firstly, drug of choice. To be addicted, you need something or someone to be addicted to. This person is called your drug of choice or in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, they call them your qualifier. It's what qualifies you to belong to that fellowship. Just like an alcoholic doesn't get addicted to every liquid and a food addict doesn't get addicted to every type of food. I mean, as a food addict, I rarely go on a lettuce binge. I can promise you that. You don't get addicted to every type of person. Alcoholics are addicted to alcohol. Food addicts are addicted to primarily sugar and flour. And the drug of choice of the relationship addict is usually someone that creates intensity in their life and reproduces an unresolved childhood drama or trauma for them. To qualify as a drug of choice, the person and what they bring into your life must chemically mood alter you beyond just normal in-love feelings. It's a real mood alter. That's drug of choice. Number two, denial. Denial is a factor in all addiction, as the others are. The relationship you're in is either unsatisfying or it's all-consuming. But you pretend it's just fine. Things aren't that bad. What this does, it allows you to run excuses in your head for being unavailable to other areas of your life if you're consumed in the relationship. Or if the relationship is unfulfilling, it allows you to make excuses for being miserable. Oh, look, I know, it just needs more time. Just giving it more time. I'm giving it to the spring. Or I'm giving it till you know, his work finishes or I'm giving it till the kids grow up. Or poor darling, his mother died when he was 13. That's why he can't open his heart to me. I'm sure, you know, he'll come round. These might actually be very insightful observations. I'm not saying they're not true statements of what's going on in the relationship. But if you're a relationship addict, what you're going to do is subjugate your own needs and rights in favour of, here's that big word, understanding, being understanding of the wound of the person you're addicted to. And this is very different to uh, a healthy adult understanding. This is an understanding where you subjugate yourself. This is an understanding where the wound rules the addictive relationship, not the higher self. 
And in those situations, if you really look at it, your relationship is rarely fulfilling or satisfying. Oh, so sad, isn't it? Heart's breaking. I've been there. Number three, deception. There's no self-respecting addict out there who doesn't know how to lie to themselves or others. In addictive relationships, you cover up to your friends or family about what's really going on in the relationship and how you really feel. Lots of pretending, hiding, secrecy, or selective sharing. That's all designed to keep the person you're addicted to in your life. You even lie to the person you're addicted to about your real feelings because what you've got to do is you've got to manage their reactions to you. Don't give them too much. Don't give them too little. You know, monitor their every, you know, raised eyebrow or facial response. So authenticity becomes a threat to getting what you want from them. So you sacrifice being real in favor of securing your drug of choice. Okay. Anyone's stomach squeezy yet or queasy? Mine is. Number four. Okay, so we've done the three Ds, drug of choice, denial, and deception. Number four is preoccupation. You lose focus on other things and you lose interest in other activities. You constantly run over in your head what is and isn't working with your relationship. Or you incessantly talk about it to your friends to a point where they're rolling their eyes with your obsessive one subject repertoire. It's all about figuring him or figuring her out. Why? So you can get your hit of love or security. You know, the irony of all this is that if you're in this dynamic, you have to scheme and plan and plot to get that which a healthy relationship gives you naturally or organically. It's not that you're asking for too much. It's just that you're used to getting so little that you have to scheme to get basic love and respect in one of these addictive relationships. Number five, sourcing supply and protection of supply. Every addict needs to source and protect supply of their drug of choice. We can all conjure up the image of the, you know, the heroin addict, you know, looking for the next hit. Well, the relationship addict is no different. So behaviors like stalking your partner, watching their every move, trying to work them out are all part of the course. This is vital to make sure they don't leave you. Jealousy and possessiveness can come into play. Or going to the other extreme, being overly understanding and getting taken for granted. You know, I had one client who organized threesomes for her partner. Um, and she's not like she liked them. It was just she couldn't bear the thought of him being unhappy. And the core cry here is, I'll abandon me just so long as you don't abandon me. And number six, the final one in my list, attempt to control followed by loss of control, leading to powerlessness and the inability to leave despite negative consequences. The addictive relationship usually has highs and lows, drama and conflict, ups and downs like any other addiction. One minute, they're your best friend. You feel totally loved up. The next minute, they're abandoning you and there's a hole in your soul. You get hooked, then you go through withdrawal symptoms. You try and do anything to avoid the excruciating withdrawal pain by making them happy, placating them, or even causing a fight so you can have makeup sex or, or you can knock sense into them. But the dynamic of ups and downs continues. And what happens is that intensity is substituted for intimacy. 
intensity is substituted for intimacy. So, essentially, if the relationship you're in does you more harm on any level, psychological, emotional, spiritual, physical, sexual, if it does you more harm than good, and you can't turn it around through reasonable negotiations, or you can't leave it, then you're likely to be in an addictive relationship. If you can't leave it because of economic circumstances, then you, you've got circumstances there. But if you, if, if the, but you still have to dig underneath to see if that's an excuse or a real economic circumstance. So don't just think, oh, no, no, I'd leave if I had the money. You have to dig deeper and see if you're actually you know, in a compulsion to stay in that dynamic. Having said that, there are so-called happy addictive relationships where the two people are mutually addicted to each other, kind of in their own bubble. I say good for them. I mean, they might be annoying to others, but if it works for them, cool. I mean, just like there are people who overeat and never get fat, people who smoke never get cancer, people who are functional alcoholics, there are, you know, people who are in addictive dynamics that don't do them damage. You know, they're like the, 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 the addictive component isn't so advanced that it's acting on them despite negative consequences. It, it's probably blocking some level of spiritual growth because addiction does that. Just like eating bad food and not getting fat isn't the only reason not to, you know, to, to not to, you know, getting fat isn't the only reason not to eat bad food. Bad food is still bad food. But I'm not saying, I'm not putting any judgment on this, nor am I being a perfectionist and saying you have to fix every relationship. I'm just saying if you're in one that's creating negative consequences for you, then listen up. The most common addictive relationship is where a codependent person, if you don't know what that means, Google it, but you'll kind of work it out from this, is this codependent person is addicted to rescuing a substance or process addict. Let me give you an example. So a codependent, so codependents are helpers, you know, basically. <coughs> helpers and rescuers and, you know, people who care for others more than they care for themselves. I don't mean caring people, I mean caretaking, doing for others what they could, what the other person could do for themselves in order to feel get feelings of well-being and usefulness for themselves. So a codependent gets addicted to helping the alcoholic or the drug addict or the gambler, for example, get well. Because the codependent can see the potential in this person and they think, oh, if only you stopped X, Y, Z, you'd be amazing. You'd be, you know, a concert pianist or a great script writer or a amazing father or an amazing mother so they see the potential which is awesome um, and probably true but they make it their mission to bring it out in the other person the codependent fantasy is usually that when they achieve this noble task they'll be valued appreciated and hopefully become indispensable to the person they just rescued that way the formerly broken partner would never leave them and it will finally be their turn to relax and be loved ever after. In the meantime, the codependent loses their sense of self and puts the focus on taking care of their partner or the relationship itself. Now the horrid fallacy of this thinking is that whomever they rescue usually ends up leaving when they've been fixed Oh, my God. Because guess what? They now think they can do better. Ugh, ouch. Then the codependent's high becomes a huge crash, triggering the very abandonment pain they desperately sought to avoid. I remember when I was in my mid-20s and I was living in London and I fell in love with a, um, an alcoholic. I really want to say his name because he's got the best name, but... You never know, he might listen to the show one day. But he lived in Berlin and 
he was gorgeous and alcoholic and depressed. And on our first date, he basically told me his traumatic childhood story. And I remember looking into his eyes and going, oh, my God, if anyone can help you, it'll be me. And I basically fell in love with helping him become a better person and, you know, and for all my endeavors, he basically, you know, just said, you're great, but you'll never be my big love. And, oh, my God, that sentence haunted me for about, I don't know, 15 years in therapy. (laughs) You'll never be my big love. Oh, how could I not be? I'm the one person who could fix you. Well, needless to say, despite my best efforts, I never fixed him. And hopefully he's gone on to have a beautiful life in Berlin with some beautiful German woman. Anyway, I just remember as if I was in that bar in Berlin today, the pain, uh, the, the, the hope I felt when I thought I could rescue him and the pain I felt when he said, yeah, you ain't the one, baby. <laughs> he did like me a soul, though. That was sweet. So, is there anything to gain from these addictive relationships? Well, of course there is. There's always something to gain. The universe makes use of everything. It wastes nothing. Well, they tell you a lot about what's missing within you. And they tell you about what holes you have from your childhood or karma or, or and it's, you know, something that you have to work on in your own um, soul growth. I believe addictive relationships are karmic relationships. They're sent to us to help us to heal our childhood wounds. It's not the person that heals your wounds, by the way. It's you, the way you interact with them and what you choose to do about it that gives you the opportunity to heal your childhood wounds. Now, our job in these relationships is, like in any unconscious relationship, remembering that this is a genre of unconscious relationship, is to learn our lessons so we can clear that karma and move to a new vibrational plane. If we don't see this and heal it, then guess what? We end up re-traumatizing ourselves over and over again. If you can, go back and listen to my Conscious versus Unconscious Relationships podcast and you'll understand that every relationship is designed for your mutual soul growth, even the addictive ones. Let me tell you the pathway to growth. Good if you write this down or go back and listen to it. It's got three components. The pathway to growth in these and kind of in any area is one, Find the childhood wound that the person you're addicted to is triggering. I call that name it. Two, heal the wound through therapy or a variety of other modalities of healing and personal growth work or spiritual work. Not all, and it's got to be psycho-spiritual. It can't be one or the other in in my view. And that's called claim it. So you name it, you claim it. And then number three, you move on, either with or without that person, depending on whether they heal their wound that you're triggering in them. That's let it go and evolve. Name it, claim it, let it go and evolve. Okay, now lots of people hate labels, but I'm going to give you some to describe that trait that exists in people who usually end up in addictive relationships. Here goes. Love addict. Love addicts are people who seek to fulfill an inner emptiness and medicate a fear of abandonment by pursuing love from an external source as a substitute for self-love. All addicts are preoccupied with the pursuit of their drug of choice, but a love addict is a real chaser. They chase the hit, the relief, the hope of fulfillment through their love object. They're like terriers with a bone and lovesick puppies all at once. They have a strong fear of abandonment. You can be a love addict, 
that never quite makes it into a relationship because chasing love is your MO. Or you can be a love addict that can't be without a relationship. It's a serial relationship addict because your fear of abandonment and being alone is too terrifying. That's the love addict. I mean, of course, there's a lot more. You could write a book on each of these, but just some headings for you. The love avoidant is the next one. Love avoidant. Love avoidance avoids intimacy because of an intense fear of being used, engulfed, controlled or manipulated if they share themselves deeply with someone else. These fears come from childhood where caregivers may have used or abused them. Or they may have been abandoned and learnt to become anti-dependent, needless, wantless, in order to survive. Accessing their vulnerability is extremely challenging and threatening for avoidance. They're very emotionally guarded. They may mask this with traits like charm or generosity, which mimic openness, but they won't let anyone in easily. So... Um, can you hear me okay, Nicole? Is everything fine? Everyone hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? Yes, you're Hello? coming through. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Just good, thank you. Okay. So now love addicts are drawn to avoidance because the challenge of cracking them is itself a mood-altering pursuit and because they represent the disowned part of the love addict. So lesson-wise, an avoidant teaches the love addict containment and the love addict teaches the avoidant openness with feelings. So do you see that? The love addict and the love avoidant are drawn together and they can act out an unhealthy dynamic but on a soul growth uh, path, the avoidant is someone who withholds. So the, the, what they can teach the love addict is containment and the love addict is someone who gives and they can teach the avoidant openness. So the dark side also has a light side, which if you can learn how to understand that, you can actually heal the part of you that's uh, dysfunctional or repressed. Okay, so the next, uh, the next point that I want to talk about is the sex addict. So sex addicts and sex addiction is an intimacy disorder that involves compulsive sexual thought and behaviours and the pursuit of building your sense of well-being through sexual attention. So sex addiction isn't about lots of sex or loving sex. That's fine. There's no problem with that. It's more about getting a hit from sexual attention as a substitute for your true self-esteem. And it can also be about pursuing sexual arousal just to feel okay or calm. There's lots of childhood trauma that can underlie the pursuit of sexual arousal as a way of medicating difficult feelings um, or as an involuntary trauma repetition for those who are inappropriately aroused as children. So don't think people who love sex are sex addicts. It's more the motive for the pursuit of sex. There's also a category called a co-sex addict. And what a co-sex addict is, is a person who's basically addicted to the sex addict. And they, they find themselves repeatedly drawn to relationships with people who cheat or act out sexually. So the co-sex addict gets addicted to the sex addict because that pattern, again, was set up in their childhood in some way, usually. I know it always goes back to childhood. Freud was right on some level. And just a couple more categories I want to give you. So we've covered the love addict and the love avoidant, the sex addict and the co-sex addict. So the love and the avoidant addict can get into a dynamic. The sex addict and the co-sex addict can get into a dynamic. 
Then there's fantasy and romance, romance addicts. This is where you're compulsively seeking feelings of euphoria, romantic fantasies. It's people who live in la-la land of one day my prince or princess will come. But meanwhile, I'll avoid all these frogs and essentially dream my life away. So they're not actually selective. They're just living in some la-la land of um, avoidance. It's a form of avoidance. Um, and it can be used as a substitute for a real-life relationship or it can be used as a way of coping with an unfulfilling or depressed relationship. Uh, they've always got stars in their eyes. Okay, not to say there's anything wrong with romance, but it's when it becomes an addiction that's a problem or they live in romance novels. So, finally, just like with food addiction where you've got people who compulsively overeat and anorexics, so too in this area you've got emotional or sexual anorexia. Now, what's that? That's the compulsive avoidance of sexual or romantic nourishment. People who are so fearful that they've shut off this part of themselves as a way to stay safe. They've done this so well for so long that it's actually taken control of them and intimacy becomes a real and present danger for them. So sexual and emotional anorexia, you know, shutting off a part of you that is otherwise leads to a lot of fulfillment and nourishing. If any of these descriptions resonate with you, then it's important to understand what the wound was that set them up. Um, so this will help you answer questions as to why you haven't found your soulmate or the right relationship for you. Go back, consider these things. Don't just say, don't just complain, oh, I haven't got my soulmate or there are no good men out there or things like that or no good women out there. Really dig deep and go, am I acting out in any of these dynamics and how might they be preventing me from having the kind of relationship I want? Okay, so might just um, move on now because I want to talk about trauma bonds before I invite some questions. Remember I said there's a difference between addictive relationships and trauma bonds? Well, um, I'm going to have a little description of trauma bonds that's based on the work of Dr. Patrick Carnes. He's a specialist in the field of sex addiction and trauma. I met Dr. Carnes uh, when I did my internship at the Meadows Treatment Center in Wickenburg, Arizona back in the late 90s. And, um, he, you know, he was a true master then and he's even more of a master now. And I highly recommend his book, The Betrayal Bond, if uh, any of this stuff I'm about to say resonates with you. Okay, let's catch our breath. We've done addictive relationships and addictive dynamics and now we're going to do trauma bonds. When people experience a trauma and deep abandonment and neglect can be traumas as much as you know, a car crash or other forms of physical abuse or sexual abuse. So abandonment and neglect can be a trauma. What happens when they experience a trauma is a wound is caused. That wound may be on a psychic, spiritual, emotional, mental, physical or sexual level or all the above. If this wound is deep enough, and the terror around it big enough, the body chemically alters. The system elevates into an alarm state where it can't feel safe under similar conditions. We call that hypervigilance when we're discussing post-traumatic stress disorders. In that state of hypervigilance, the trauma sufferer doesn't notice that a part of them has split off and a layer of numbness masks the underlying grief for that lost or traumatized part of themselves. 
Like everyone who has loss, the person experiences shock, disbelief, fear, loneliness, and sadness. However, the disconnection from self prevents them from really connecting and owning that. Because they can't connect, abandon themselves, they split off from themselves. And what happens in a trauma bond is they abandon themselves in favor of an unholy attachment to the perpetrator. They abandon themselves in favor of an unholy attachment to their perpetrator. They can develop a highly addictive attachment to the perpetrator and the the trauma survivor may even blame themselves, their defects, their failed efforts for the abuse they're receiving. They then start to distrust their own judgment, distort their own reality so much that they can actually place themselves at more risk of harm. Exploitative relationships create trauma bonds. Exploitative relationships can create trauma bonds. The victim bonds with someone who is destructive to them. Hostage situations, cults, Stockholm Syndrome, all those classic trauma bonds. But similarly, adult survivors of abusive and dysfunctional families struggle with bonds that are rooted in their own trauma experiences. Now, to be loyal to that which doesn't work, or worse, to a person who is toxic, to be loyal to a person who is toxic, exploitative, is an adaptation, not because you're stupid, it's an adaptation in an attempt to placate or win the perpetrator over so as to somehow feel safe in a highly intense and traumatic environment. People who have trauma bonds from their past habitually trauma bond because it's familiar. It's intense and at times because they have a repetition compulsion. Let me tell you why they have a repetition compulsion. They imagine that next time it occurs, they'll conquer the perpetrator and win back their freedom or the disowned aspect of themselves. They return to the scene of the crime looking for resolution. They're too entranced, aroused, terrified or enmeshed to realize that engineering a way to leave or end the cycle of abuse might actually be possible. That's the trauma repetition. It's repeating behaviors and or seeking situations or persons who create the trauma experience in an effort to resolve the past. Some people will find themselves in the same situation with the same type of person over and over again in their lives, yet they may never link it to the original traumatic experience. Some survivors repeat not only the same scenario, but also the exact behavioral experience. Dr. Kang tells the story of a nurse who was hospitalized many times for depression and, and suicidal ideation. She kept telling everyone that she had this problem with masturbation, but they just ignored it because they didn't see it as relevant to her being suicidal. Eventually, this clever therapist explored what the masturbation was really about. And when she told her story, it wasn't just masturbation, it was autoerotic asphyxiation. What this nurse would do was hang herself in a closet while compulsively masturbating. I mean, it's surprised she's still alive. In her therapy, she drew a picture of her father raping her at the age of 10 while strangling her, then locking her in a closet. So all the elements of the original scenario were there, sexual stimulation, strangulation, extreme danger, and the dark closet. What she was doing was compulsively reenacting that scene from her childhood. As much as she tried to stop it, she couldn't. She was carrying so much toxic shame that the only way she could ask for help, her cry for help, was suicidal attempts. So that's, yeah, finally, actually, 
when when they did that, she was able to release that trauma. So in part, the trauma repetition is an effort by the victim to bring resolution to the trauma. By repeating the experience, they keep trying to figure out a way to respond so the fear can be eliminated. Now, I believe this can go one of two ways. One, the victim simply keeps deepening the traumatic wound. Or two, the victim realizes that their subconscious is seeking resolution and they work with their therapist or life coach to unearth and heal this trauma. I don't believe that a repetition compulsion is an addiction or a futile pathology. I believe it's the subconscious guiding the person to heal the underlying trauma, which may be acting out in their body in some psychosomatic way or relationship dysfunction way. The trick is how exactly that healing should occur. Certainly not by endangering yourself over and over, but rather by finding the courage to stop the abuse that the victim couldn't find at the time of the the trauma. Even if it's just an empowered reenactment whereby the victim says no in a therapeutic context, somehow you have to psychically overcome that tragedy. Okay, almost done. A trauma bond... Now listen, I'm going to link the trauma bond and the addictive relationship, okay? We've talked about addictive relationships and they have their own version of attachment and we've talked about trauma bonds and their version of attachment. A trauma bond can coexist with an addictive relationship and it can be the underlying force that sets one up. However, a trauma bond is a trans state It's a trance state coming from a desperation to survive based on a real experience of threat to one's existence or essence. An addictive relationship mimics this, but it's essentially a mood-altering dependency on a person where the threat of annihilation is imagined. Yeah? So in a trauma bond... There was a threat to survival that was real. In an addictive relationship, it feels like it's real, but it's imagined. Usually, I mean, there are people who get addicted to violent people. That's a separate story. But but in an addictive relationship, people think they'll die if they leave. Um both require thorough self analysis and deep healing work. Both require a removal of the perpetrator or the drug of choice. In the case of the addict, this is a detox where withdrawal symptoms must be ridden out. In the case of the trauma survivor, this is a reclaiming of the split-off, numbed-out aspects of the self that were damaged during the trauma Uh, shamanic soul retrieval is quite helpful with this and re-embracing the world as a safe place okay I want to say one final thing for people who are into soulmates and twin flames I want to say one final thing briefly here about the twin flame or soulmate relationship a twin flame relationship or like the life partner soulmate not just the soulmates who come along as friends part of your soul group but the soulmate life partner or the ultimate twin flame relationship can look to many outsiders like an addictive relationship it really can or it can even look like a trauma bond when it's not working as one would imagine it should but when you meet your twin flame the universe intends for you two to have a bond it's part of your destiny So you can become preoccupied with them and find it almost impossible to stop thinking about them. That's the universe. That's the universe for the angels directing you to where the universe wants you to be and who it wants you to choose. It's not a compulsion. It's thoughts. It's signs. It's feelings that come into you. They don't do you harm, but they occupy your mind. They keep directing you. They're like little directions to who you should be with but if the timing is wrong for you two to be together then it's going to feel like a love addict love avoidant dynamic 
If you panic, then you can traumatize yourself. What you need to know is that if this person you're thinking about is your twin flame or soulmate, really, then they're also on some level being guided to think about you. The universe will find a way for you two to be together in divine timing, not your time. Your only job is to allay your fears, have faith, prepare yourself for a deep love and continue to love yourself as unconditionally as you possibly can. One indicator to know if they're a twin flame is that if the energy between you is life-affirming, and I don't mean a high, I mean it brings out the best in you and you bring out the best in him or her for your mutual soul growth, then it's likely to be a relationship chosen by your soul and part of your destiny that will come together in divine time. Look, it may have dysfunctional components. It won't be perfect. But these are part of the work that you two are supposed to do together in order to grow. Addictive relationships and trauma bonds are difficult and destructive. Relationships chosen for you by your soul or the universe can be difficult, but they're life-affirming, not destructive. Okay. I won't go into this. It's a huge topic on its own, but I wanted to add that to people who think who might think they're going crazy and beating themselves up because their intuition is telling them one thing and their friends are telling them another. Big warning here, though. This isn't carte blanche for all bunny boilers and lovesick puppies, you know who you are, to call an addiction a twin flame. Do your inner work. Don't lie to yourself. Please, love you either way, but really, do the work. So, enough from me, Nicole. Um, If anyone sent in an email or called, I'd be happy to take that question or answer the email. A couple of questions, a couple of big ones. First one, actually, um, I wanted to ask this one. When you're talking about uh, intimacy, anorexia, I've never even heard of that. Um, At what point... When you have, like, at what point are you on the choosing to be on your own versus that? And how do you determine that? Is that real motivation? Ah, you've got to work out if there's any fear operating. You know, that's what that's where you've got to dig in and say, okay, have I actually um, been so disappointed that I've shut off a part of myself, um, or? is there some reason I think I need to be on my own? Um, if, if you truly want love, um, why would you choose to be on your own? Um, it would be my question, you know? Uh, so you, you want to dig into, is there fear, is there disappointment, or is there some kind of alchemist-like mission you're on where you need to be on your own like right now? Does that make sense? Um, how do you know you're getting the right answer? How do you know you're not answering with the fear side of the mind and, you know? Okay. Well, if I can ask some personal questions, I can help you. Well, um, I'd have have to know, are you sitting on a disappointment? For me personally? Or whoever asked that question. Do you well, know if they're sitting on... Yeah, okay. Are you sitting on a disappointment? Do you have a heartbreak that hasn't healed? I wouldn't call it that. It was... It was um, I purposely chose to get on the consciousness path and overcome past generational mm-hmm. patterns and, um, mm-hmm. and all that. So I started the, you know, consciousness path, developing... Mm-hmm. And doing the work and getting, you know, learning and growing, but it's just turned mm-hmm. into a time. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you know, there, there are people, people do this all the time. They make a decision to work on themselves and then they find out that working on themselves takes a long, long time. But I think for, for people who do make a decision to work on themselves, you have to put out to the universe that it's safe and possible to work on yourself while being in a conscious relationship and then the work would be to have the belief that um, you won't be 
you know, disappointed or let down or if there was past generations that were disappointed or let down or there was past trauma from past generations, then you, you do a thing where you hand that back to the past generations in a, in a, in a, in a handing back exercise. You release that trauma, you give it back to Mother Earth or the universe and you, you call into your current energy permission to start a new pathway for future generations. And then what happens is you'll start getting guidance from the universe about what you need to heal in this past life because for people who do, say, past life work or past generational work, there's so much trauma in the past you could spend this whole life only healing it you, you almost become like a nun you know you dedicate your life to healing so you have to make a choice are you just going to dedicate your life to healing that trauma in that way for the generations and just clearing their energy or are you going to engage in relationship and then God will bring you, the universe will bring you a partner who can do it with you. It's kind of like the difference between being Catholic and Anglican. The Catholics have to give up relationships to be of service and the Anglicans don't. (laughs) So, yeah. So the, the universe will give you any opportunity for growth in any form you ask for it. Um, but it will always make you heal whatever your own personal block is in, in the way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does make sense, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we had a... And Nicole, you're so beautiful. <laughs> you're so attractive and all those belly dancing skills, you know. Um, but it really is a personal choice there and a yeah. personal honesty. Yeah. Yeah. Like I felt really called to keep my energy clear and separate while creating and building new sort of soul and while raising my kids. You know. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It, you were dedicated. You were yeah. dedicated. And I think it's quite valid to ask after twenty years. You know, does can this dedication change its form, and can mm-hmm. it have a partner in it, and can it have a partner in it, and then once you put that to the universe, the universe will start telling you how it, it won't happen instantly but it'll tell you how yeah well i was just intrigued by that term i'd never heard of it um let's get yeah. to one more question yeah. before we run out of time we're already seven minutes to the top uh, let's get to uh so this is linda in ontario she had um so she's gone through uh, addictive relationships in the past and she finds that she just uh-huh. moves on different addiction every time she drops one thing it just gets replaced with something else and what is your advice mm. about that so it uh, is um so is it linda is so linda swapping from relationship addiction to other addictions is that what it is so she'll swap from relationships to food or alcohol or different addictive people yeah. um well well if you linda if you're swapping from one addiction to another it's usually called being a poly addict. So what happens is that your your body is seeking um, relief and it's seeking to mood alter. You're probably going to find you have an underlying depression. You might eliminate one thing, but because the underlying depression hasn't been treated or the underlying anxiety disorder hasn't been treated, your system will seek a coping mechanism. Okay, there's nothing, you're not doing anything bad or wrong. It's just the way your restlessness, your underlying pain is seeking resolution through poly addictions. People can have primary and secondary addictions. You might have a primary addiction of of relationship and then have secondary addictions. I've got a primary addiction of food and then then relationship. so yeah, so you, what what you, you're going to find you've got some underlying um, depression or anxiety or something that is seeking to be coped with through these variety of addictions. So you have to treat that. Then you have to know which which addictions you won't go to that many. Some people can go to five or six, but there'll be primary ones. 
then you can get into a 12-step fellowship for the primary ones or work on it in therapy. Or um, Email me um, if you need further clarification on that to grace at gracegedeon.com and I'll, uh, I'll help direct you a bit more. Is there time for one more quick question? I can do it in one minute if, you, if you've got um, one. I can. Uh, pull up a quick one here. <clears throat> You mentioned about clearing. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. This is Teresa in New York. You mentioned about clearing energetically the original wounds. How do you find the original wound, and how do you actually clear it? Oh, okay. That's that's cool. That's part of my assignment. Okay, so um, I'm going to list that in that. But to find the um, original wound, journaling, writing out stuff, um, and uh, meditation and asking your subconscious to take you back. You know those guided meditations, like in a child type guided meditations can take you back to the original wound. If you're not really good at doing this by yourself, you don't want to go back there and open something up and then feel really vulnerable. So if you know you've got a trauma, um, either do very, very gentle guided meditations or go and do it with um, a, a therapist um, who knows how to do childhood wound stuff, shamanic soul retrieval, EMDR. You know, I'm a big advocate of, of um, therapeutic work. That's, that's my thing. So I dig deep, but don't avoid it because it'll come out in some area of your life psychosomatically or relationally or addictively. Or it can be carried on in other generations as Nicole has highlighted. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. I know it was a big topic today, you know, relationship addiction, trauma bonds. Um, they're big things that underlie people. So my journaling assignment for those listening to this, um, for, for those of you listening and interested is number one, write down what your relationship issue is. You know, and if you if you don't like writing, just five minutes seriously, put pen to paper. And if nothing comes out when you write with your dominant hand, swap the pen to your non-dominant hand. Make the pen touch the tip of the paper, and then just start writing. Okay, it's slower, but something will come out, and it's a little bit better than typing it up. One, write down what your relationship issue is. Two. Identify if you are or have ever been in an addictive relationship. Then ask yourself what role you played. Were you the love addict, the love avoidant, the sex addict, the co-sex addict, the romance and fantasy addict, or the emotional, sexual, anorexic? Three, write down if you think you may have a trauma bond. If anything I've said makes you think, oh, yeah, you know, I think I've got a trauma bond. Or if you might be currently in a trauma repetition compulsion. Write that down. Number four, meditate. Do a guided meditation or visualization. If you feel safe to go there on your own, make sure you're safe and ask your subconscious to take you back to a childhood memory of where any of these behaviors may have been set up. Write out that memory, dialogue with that part of you at that age and reassure her or him, that you're now safe. This is kind of inner child work for people who've ever done that and or, or dialoguing with the disowned aspect of the self. And number five, take this information to your therapist, life coach, spiritual teacher or wise confidant and process it in a safe environment. Get under it so you can get over it. Okay, guys, thank you for joining me today. I'll be back in two weeks on Monday, June the 19th to help you make your next break breakthrough. And until then, just remember when you understand the workings of your psyche, what drives you to think, feel and act the way you do, your breakthrough is imminent and your life can be amazing. Bye, Nicole. Bye, everyone. See you in two weeks. All right, Grace. Awesome information today. Have a great couple of weeks, and we'll talk to you soon. Grace Gideon's all linked up at newsforthesoul.com, and we do have a few more shows live. Christine Scott is next, and it continues on from there right after this. 
is Nicole Whitney News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. It's a great honor to have you on the show tonight. Welcome, Deepak Chopra. Thank you. Yes, this is Uri. Hi, Uri. It's Nicole Whitney. Call in to live News for the Soul shows daily for intuitive coaching, readings, numerology, leading-edge health information, and much, much more with featured hosts from around the world. Go to newsforthesoul.com to join the next live show now. That's newsforthesoul.com.